Hello, Craig. Thanks for the invitation, Pablo. It's, it's going to be a pleasure to talk to you. Um, for all our listeners, Craig is a uh, documentary filmmaker and a uh, friend. How are you today, Craig? Can't complain. It's been a, an interesting day. I've been looking at what comes next and the documentary uh, spray is getting a lot of views now on a few channels it's available in on amazon it's also on gaia tv g-i-a g-a-i-a dot com and just type in sprayed and and it's available and so there's that and then as you know i have a a, a new venture going on here in in Ecuador, which I'm documenting about the reforestation of at, at in danger areas, buffer zones between national park where there's wildlife and uh, human activity, basically cattle ranching. So those are the two big activities of the day. Okay, so you're announcing that your next documentary is going to be with the deforestation and cattle ranching subject you just mentioned. Whether it comes out as a documentary um, or whether it comes out immediately. I don't know. What I do know is that I'm documenting the process of the transformation from degraded pasture lands to forest uh, with concentration of edible plants that are endemic to the forest and also tracking the the return of wild animals like the white spectacle bear, giant pumas, not giant pumas, giant uh, tapers, pumas. So that's, and that's in conjunction with the Wildlife Conservation Society that's helping me. So, so it hopefully will turn into a documentary, but for now I'm documenting it to see, see the process without knowing the outcome. Similarly to the way that Sprayed was done, um, I didn't even know the title. I, I, the topic wasn't even what, You know, it, we ended up looking at the at the Zika virus, but the initial topic was really to look at the comparative experience between families and individuals in Vietnam and Brazil, where there had been a, a period of a large number of cases of children born with birth defects. So that was actually the initial topic or the initial plan was to look at the two locations, travel to Vietnam and Brazil and to To, to see the cultural differences, the family differences between what had happened in Vietnam back in the, in the 60s, 70s, and what, was, what had been happening in, 1950, in 2015, 2016 in Brazil when there was this upsurge of children being born with, with microcephaly and other, um, other birth defects. So we're not going to give too much of sprayed away, but... Let's try to connect it with uh, what we're experiencing now. Uh, do you see any parallels with, with the coronavirus? I guess the parallels would be the concerns that have been raised in relationship to, to a virus. So that would be um, one relationship. Um, I think what's very different is that In the case of the coronavirus, this has gone global and it's been persistent. 
Whereas in the case of, of Brazil, where there were children being born with birth defects, it was very concentrated over a very short period of months, actually, where there were, the peak was over a period of months. And it was very concentrated in the northeast of Brazil, particularly in, the, in a few small towns. So it's very different. But um, what, what could be similar, as a matter of fact, I would dare to say will definitely be similar, is that there, there, would be, there, there is going to be many different uh, hypotheses of what harms the, 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 the virus does and uh, how you, you can cure it, right? I mean, it's, it's already happening. You have a different sectors of society saying different things. And, and that in itself is dangerous because in my opinion, at least while the pandemic, pandemic lasts, you should have a single authoritative body uh, giving the instructions on how to handle it. Which body would that be? Well, I guess uh, state governments, Uh, with all its faults, the World Health Organization, right? I think that we have a, we, what, one thing that I think is similar is that we don't know enough information about either case. If you look at the case of Zika, um, even on the CDC website, it says there is no definitive connection between the virus and the birth defects. So we don't even know, there's, there's no conclusive evidence that of causation in that particular case. So, um, so that, that's certainly something that makes it different. Hold on one second. There was some interference. Um, so that is one, one difference. Secondly, what the documentary looks at is what were the different things that were occurring in Brazil at the time that there was the microcephaly outbreak. There was, there was, and what the film looks at are the three things that happened simultaneously. There was, there was the detection of Zika. There was the use of genetically modified mosquitoes released to control dengue. And there was also the use of paraproxifen in the water tanks to control dengue. So in that particular case, there were three different occurrences at the same time. And uh, the scientific community had concluded that the cause was most likely the Zika virus. In this particular case, I haven't, you know, I, I haven't heard of any alternative opinion other than that it is, it is the coronavirus. Well, well, yes, it's it's also a, a brand new virus. It's before the, the later months of 2019, nobody knew anything about it. But what has what this virus 
has produced is incredible speed in research. I'm not sure how if, if, if Zika is being researched much th these days anymore, but um, peer-reviewed journals have been producing uh, new knowledge with regards to the coronavirus at, I mean, lightning speeds, relative lightning speeds, months and compared to years. So, I, yeah, I would think so because if you think about the scope of the effects are so big. If you look, I mean, Zika, the Zika virus had affected, the effects were concentrated in the Northeast of Brazil and there was concern that the Zika virus would affect, so the Zika was found in Colombia, but there were, they didn't find a significant number of cases of children with birth defects. Zika was found in the United States and I don't think there's any significant cases of birth defects correlated with that. So it was very concentrated to a specific place and time. Whereas in this case, it's, it's, it's something that's gone completely global. And so I would imagine the, the, the interest is much higher. No doubt. But so with, with regards to your documentary, one of the things you explore is an alternative explanation for the birth defects that were attributed to the Zika virus. You contend that it, you, it could be possible that uh, certain chemicals and other things might have been responsible and not necessarily the mosquitoes. I think that the, what the film does is inconclusive. But what it does do is it listens to the perspectives of the scientists who worked on, who did research and who initially found the correlation between the Zika virus and birth defects, who had also indicated that more research needed to be done because there's a difference between correlation and causation. Something can, two things can happen at the same time, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one caused the other. So that is something that um, the scientists had com com commented to me that, that that needed to be further researched. Um, and then the question was that came up in the documentary was the, the, the mothers themselves, well, what did they think? You know, I, one thing that I found in most of the news briefings is that they really didn't get to hear from the mothers who had tested, who had who had children with birth defects. We don't, we didn't hear what, what, their, what their thoughts were. Um, also, I think it goes beyond that to think about the experiences. And it, oh, the film also looks at the experiences of the families in Vietnam and about the human side of things. Like, what is it like living with a child with birth defects? How does that child interact with the rest of the family? In the case of Vietnam, how are, how, How do the parents feel about you know their children? How is you know what are the what is the in the case of Vietnam, it was it it is believed to have been caused by by Napalm. chemicals, napalm specifically. Right? Well, it's interesting because even in that particular case, if you look at the case of Vietnam, people often talk about Agent Orange, but if you there were close to 20 different chemical formulations that were used during that war. And uh, it's believed that it's the dioxin, which is a byproduct of Agent Orange, that was the cause of the birth defects. But there were 18 different chemicals that were being used, and those have not been researched very well. 
the only thing that has been researched is the dioxin, which is proven to be, you know, highly toxic and cause it cause causes birth defects. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the other chemicals that were applied do not. Um, the other thing that became apparent in the case of Vietnam, which was of interest to me, was that the sense was that the reason why children are still being born with birth defects, which I didn't know until I got there. I had no idea that the problem was continuing. I didn't know the, the scope of the, uh, of the problems and that it was continuing from family, from generation to generation. I didn't know that. And then the question was, like, what's causing it now? Why are children still being born with birth defects? Is it because it stayed in the soil or is it, is it genetic? So what you are asking the viewer to explore is to at least admit that further study is needed uh, with regards to all these chemicals that are being used in different parts of the world. Because the, the, the first effect is it's kind of clear, right? In Vietnam, it was death, but long-term effects and secondary effects and secondary effects of those secondary effects are unknown. That, I mean, there they have not been, the, the science, the scientific community has not, or the, the resources have not been committed to deeper understanding of the Vietnamese situation nor of the Brazilian situation. Where, where's the, why aren't we continuing to research what, what happened in Brazil? Isn't it, I mean, the fact that, you know, the, the mothers have now given birth to healthy children was a good win against what the scientific community believed at the time. They believed that if they had tested positive for Zika, that their children would, would be, you know, they shouldn't, shouldn't have children. And a number of the mothers who I interviewed, I've, you know, I've stayed in touch with them. They did, they've had children and the children have been born healthy. So those are the, so there's a lot of interesting things that have occurred since making the documentary that are, that are certainly worth exploration. The University of Sao Paulo, I believe in 2017, did a study following 53 women. It's a small sample size, but they did follow 53 women who were pregnant and who tested positive for the Zika virus to find out you know, what, how, what would happen, how would their children develop, what would be the immediate effects. And uh, you know, the results in that particular case were that, from my understanding, is that the babies were born healthy. With, with the vast amount of, of, of money that is, is directed to scientific inquiry, why isn't some of that money directed to cases like the, the ones we are mentioning right now? in your opinion? Well, if you look at how budgets are set, I mean, I understand that universities have monies and departments have monies that are designated for very specific research activities. I, it's very rare that a, that a university has the freedom to, to receive research dollars and spend them on anything that's of interest. Um, so I would suppose that the that the, the research is done on the things that are of interest to those who are sponsoring the research. So that's, that is a, that's a, certainly a concern because, you know, there's a lot of, if, if, a, I, I mean, but that's, that's the way, that's the way uh, it's structured. How, how, um, how would you conduct a, a research like this? I assume the first thing you would need to do is a group of uh, scientists interested in the subject 
who would uh, conduct research on a small sample. And after that sample produces interesting results, quote unquote, interesting, uh, then you would get the funds for a large scale uh, investigation. Isn't that the way it usually works? I mean, step by step. That would be that would be a, a good way for it to work, I suppose. Okay, so I, I definitely enjoyed Sprayed, and as well as your other documentaries, uh, I, I would recommend uh, anyone listening to to check them out. We were talking yesterday, and you were mentioning how you're faring the, the quarantine situation by producing your own food. I thought that was uh, fantastic. I mean, how do you find the time to produce all your fruits and vegetables and, you know? Well, first I produce, produ when I, uh, you know, before building my house, I thought more about planting fruit trees. It always seemed interesting to me to be, if I'm in a fertile area, it seemed sensible to, to plant food producing trees rather than ornamentals. It's the concept seemed logical and, the, and historically um, societies were built around food. It's only, it was only in, in recent years that we've separated food production from where people live. In Vietnam, for example, it's very rare to find a home that doesn't grow most of its own food. And it's, it's a cultural thing. Whereas, whereas I believe that in many Western societies, we, we, we very much removed ourselves from food production. Although that being said, I mean, I think 70% of, of the food that we consume is produced by small growers. 70% is the, is the number of, uh, is, the, is the latest number that I had seen. And only 30% of the food that we consume as, as, a, as humanity is coming from their very large farms, even though people believe it's the opposite. So to grow my own food in as much as I can, I think is, um, is really traditional. This is how it used to be. And if I have land in a fertile place, I mean, we're here in, in Ecuador where, you know, it's a very, you know, the soils are, are rich. It, it always made sense to, to, to at the very least have our own fruit trees. And, uh, you know, so I, I but it actually over this period, yeah, I put a lot more time into it. I, and yeah, it's taken quite a bit of time, but it's also been a good learning experience because I'm also planting here uh, some of the, I'm having modeling what I'm doing in the cloud forest. And I, I had mentioned to you yesterday that, that in Napo province, uh, the jungle province of Napo in the high Amazon, um, I had acquired a land to reforest. And in that context, I've identified a number of edible plants that I that are important for the reforestation process for, for and I planted them here in 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 uh, outside of Quito in Cumbaya and so far they're adapting pretty well because here I have water. Um, so a forest farming concept is what you're talking to me now, right? Yes, uh, yes, I'm interested in the forest farming concept because I think. Two well, certainly one of the obvious challenges that we're facing is, you know, the eco ecological, you know, existential risk that we face from deforestation, from from the climate crisis. So it's something that we really can't turn our back on, and 
And while it wasn't in the initial plan, you know, looking at, at issues like, like zoonotic diseases like COVID-19 is a, uh, you know, where, where disease passes from animal to humans. According to the CDC, uh, six out of the 10 of the modern diseases are zoonotic. They're originating in animals and passing to humans. So um, according to the United Nations uh, environmental program, they're saying that we really need to make a big effort to keep the animals, wild animals, in their environment. We have to stop destroying their ecosystems. We have to stop destroying their habitats. And that could be part of one of the steps among many to control pandemics, like the one we're experiencing now. You, you mentioned six of the 10 uh, modern diseases? According, I mean, yes, I haven't looked at or the six numbers. Of, six out of every 10 modern six disease, six are, are zoonotic. Well, yeah, it's the, you read the press and... Uh, about the origins of coronavirus, and uh, most of them would be would come to the conclusion that it came from bats, right? So, and precisely the reason why we're so in close contact with bats is exactly what you just said. We we're just too close to uh, the natural habitats of too many animals. Well, what we do know is that there's animals are being sold, they're being poached. They're being where their their habit. I mean, we even find that bears in the are moving, you know, going down to the road as they're as they're, they're as they're being hunted, as the lands are cleared for cattle ranching. So, and we know that there's that there's animal trade. We know those things exist. Their final destination has there are multiple destinations for these animals. Well, the idea, when I started reforesting, I ended up, we, we were tracking with, with cameras with the Wildlife Conservation Society. And we were so impressed to see the return of at-risk animals into this area. So the idea is, what if we could reforest in a way that rebuilds the habitats of the animals, but also reforest in a way that where you're also growing food for the animals, but also for people? The way I see it is that this pandemic has given the world a absolutely unique chance to to change the way it functions, uh, particularly in two ways. The first is to control carbon. I mean, if you look at the the price of fossil fuels and the utilization of fossil fuels during the pandemic, it, it has decreased to a point where it would be very easy to put a price on carbon and uh, end fuel subsidies, which would be the most important things uh, societies in the, around the world could do to uh, detach ourselves from, from, from the fossil fuel industry. And the second is what we're discussing now, which is the production of food. And within the production of food, I think there's two things that could go a long way. The first in my opinion, would be to grow meat out of stem cells, like that famous company from Google. And uh, I think there's another one, but that I don't remember the name. So, because I, I think it's irrealistic to turn every, I mean, the entire world vegetarian. That's just never going to happen, in my opinion. And the second thing that seems very promising in for, for food production is is what you're into in, 
which is forest farming. So to produce vast amounts of food with, with safeguarding a, a, the eco, ecosystems is, it seems at first glance to be a no-brainer. Uh, so with regards to your um, your venture, uh, what, what crops? What crops are you forest farming? Yeah, this is the, what I, I worked backwards. I've, I really looked at what plants grow in this forest, and that also becomes one of the challenges. My interest was not to introduce anything. I'm not interested in growing cacao or coffee. Those are not plants that grow there. That's not, I mean, they could grow there, but they're not the plants of of the forest. I, my, so what I did was I, I looked at what was growing there naturally. And what was growing there, for example, was, was poroton, which is a, which is a protein of the high, uh, it's a vegetable protein. It's one of the largest beans in the world. And it was consumed very popular until the mid 1500s or so. Um, and then it went out of favor when with the Incan invasion from my understanding, where the quinoa and amaranth were um, were the choice of selected, you know, vegetable proteins. So, sorry, come again, what's the name? Poroton, P-O-R-O-T-O-N. That's what is known here. In Colombia, it's known as chachafruto. Chachafruto. In Colombia. Um, Here here we, uh, in Ecuador, we call the poroto just any bean, right? This is poroton. Poroton, right? It's very large. It uh, and uh, it it was it was when I, when I had uh, some the red decimias had come and visited my my property. And, oh my goodness! These trees were even in. You know, it was very rare to find so many of these trees growing. You know, in their natural environment. And we also identified other plants like the, There's a high altitude guayusa plant that grows there. There's Ishbingo, uh, which is this, the Andean cinnamon. There's Chihualcan, which is uh, a type of some kind of like a, t- a type of babaco slash papaya. There's Lucuma, which is the, you know, the one of the most, I think it's the top ice cream flavor in Peru. There's two varieties, one which the bears like, and then another one for human consumption. I happen to have the ones that the bears like. Then we also found other plants, motilon. Motilon is like a, like an acai. It's a it's a berry that is uh, that grows in, in the forest. But these are all tree crops. These are all, uh, and then of course, as you probably know, there's a lot of naranjilla in this area. There's um, blackberries grow. Walea is another vegetable protein that's a rastrero. That I guess it's it, it's a creeping vine that also rose there. So my feeling was, well, rather than trying to introduce things, what if we were to grow the plants that are endemic to the forest and or native to the forest in a higher concentration, but also think about replanting with in a, what's called a, um, uh, an analog forest where you're also planting un, not, not just edibles, but but trees and plants that are important for, for the ecosystem and for the animals. So that would include, for example, aguacatillo, which is a, um, which is a plant that is a favorite of, of the white spectacle bear. 
So there's just a lot of other trees that just make sense to to let develop and to to and this, this is really an experiment. It's an experiment to see if it's possible because think about the amount of areas that would need to be reforested to have a significant carbon impact. Think about the amount of, you know, if we, I mean, can you imagine if we could potentially connect two national parks, Antisana and Cayambe Coca, with, with, with basically an edible, edible food corridor? I mean, that's, that's a pie-in-the-sky dream, but if these areas are degraded and there's cattle farming and we could, you know, help uh, in a transition and find other, and this was never meant, this never was a traditionally a cattle area. This was introduced as a as an alternative for you know as a, a alternative income. But even the the cattle farmers are uh, who are producing milk and meat are not making money. The prices have come down with dollarization. You know the the Ecuador is not that competitive compared to Peru and Colombia. So apparently, um, you know they're they're struggling. So they're looking for alternatives as well. Well, one thing to consider is that you obviously cannot plant everything because uh, you mentioned 15 different, 20 different crops. Some crops would uh, are definitely fitter than the others. So you, you would have to um, acquire the knowledge to determine which crop would be fitter in, in the forest plantation. Right. Well, all right. of these plants were automatic. Were already there. It's not that the, it's, it goes the other way around. It's the, the, it wasn't. Well, what plants adapt? It's like these are among the edibles that are in the area. Right. But right. But but still within within uh, the na native crops, the native plants, some will outgrow the others. That's or, that's true. We don't know which ones will will do the best, and and we also don't know how this can be grown in a way that will have a, a positive impact for the animals. And we also need to be sure that we're truly having a carbon positive outcome. It's not, I, I think we have to move beyond carbon neutral. We talk, we're hearing, you know, moving towards carbon neutrality. And I'm thinking, uh-uh, we have to be thinking regenerative wherever we can. Maybe the ultimate outcome will be carbon neutral, but in areas where we could become, you know, we can move in the op other direction. That would be more exciting. Or I'm sure it would be carbon positive or carbon negative. But in any case, I'm not sure which is the right terminology. Well, uh, but why not have an improved situation where you're actually you know, improving the situation rather than just trying to stay neutral? Because well, you need carbon in the world because trees use carbon to grow. So if you're carbon neutral, that just means that you are producing enough carbon for to, to keep the world in, in balance, which would be great. Right now we're producing too much carbon for the amount of carbon being sequestered. Right, and the idea is to sequester as much as we can. So what if you could have a productive system that's sequestering carbon rather than being neutral? Because overall, there's gonna be some sectors that quite frankly will, will be very challenging to become carbon neutral. Oh, of course. But um, uh, it, if, worldwide speaking, you have you you have to be neutral, but it, uh, naturally, if you're just talking about specific sectors, it, then to be negative, as you say, would be better than neutral, no doubt. 
with, with regards to your... an attempt. It's just an attempt. It's it's an attempt, and uh, my idea when you when we talked about documentary uh, filmmaking, I'm documenting the process because the idea would be that others can. We, you know, I would like to have a, a you know collaborative relationship where others may be able to improve upon what we're doing or may have their own experiences, and that would be quite quite interesting because you're right. There's so much that needs to be learned about this, but it's an existential necessity to try. No doubt. With your, with, you just mentioned a pie in the sky dream of connecting Antisana Park and Cayambe Park. Uh, I remember a few months ago or maybe even a year, over a year ago, I read uh, Edward Wimper's diary or, or telling of his, of his travels uh, along the Ecuadorian Andes. And when he describes his um, voyage, I mean, his, his trip from Quito to, to Cayambe into Antisana, it's, it's through a forest. So he would spot wild felines, he would spot bears. And right now it's, it's I mean, it's cement and completely de deforested plains. So it's not too long ago. I mean, Wimper was the end of the 19th century where all of that part of Ecuador was still a complete and natural forest. So, I mean, it's, it, sh it shouldn't be impossible. I guess that's my point. I think that it had the thing that the challenge is going to be finding ways to make it economically sustainable. And I think the challenge that we face uh, is, are we, are we willing to put really truly willing to put a value, a financial value on reforestation or does the ink, or does it depend solely on the value of the products that you're able to sell from the forest? Well, th those things happen when you artificially create markets. So, if you subsidize milk, if you sub subsidize farmers, it's, there's always going to be this type of problem. So you just, you, you always, you can always create incentives. So let's say you, you give tax breaks or, or whatever other incentive you can think of that makes uh, owners of the land and investors and capitalists of all kinds think about forestry then they would do it. And you, you can you see examples of this all over the world. You see the voluntary carbon markets. You see a lot of politicians not enacting, but talking about the carbon tax. So if you put all those things in place, you will have all the incentives necessary to achieve a, a dream as the one you just mentioned. Are we truly willing as a society to charge for the externalities? Generally, what I find, we, we privatize the benefits, but we socialize the costs. So that becomes a challenge. In other words, if, 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 yeah, it would be a great way to go. I mean, obviously it would be a, an excellent way to go, but is there the, is there the global political will to do that? Uh, and is there the economic will of those who can can have the decision-making power to, to see it happen. I, I just told you my opinion. I think the pandemic has given the world the perfect opportunity to enact those types of reforms, both in food production and uh, the use of fossil fuels as our main energy source. That would be amazing. It would be truly, truly 
amazing if we can learn from this experience and make radical changes in favor of, of the environment. Um, this is, at the same time, we're also facing you know, economic crisis, which puts pressures on the, some of these things that might be perceived as luxuries. You know, putting, putting, you know, putting as a priority the environment, putting as a priority, uh, you know, these issues. Is it, is it in the short term, do we have the economic wherewithal to implement? Or do we just need to survive? Well, I guess the explanation comes down to uh, they go together. I mean, what makes financial sense goes hand in hand with what makes sense for the well-being of our uh, environment, right? There's still uh, protocols in place that, for example, that we I talked about some of these products um, for it to go big, ideally, it could be added to the list of products that Ecuador exports. Ideally, you know, the, 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 as the vegetable protein market expands, which it is expanding, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the idea of growing meat from stem cells, stem cells may be a good option. Everyone's not going to go vegetarian, but the, the, the demand for vegetable proteins, you know, even before this has been growing, it's still extreme. The, the, the current demand is a tiny percentage of total protein consumption, but the rate of growth is very high. If you look at in the United States, for example, the uh, one of the largest growing sectors, I think, is the vegan ice cream market. You know, non-dairy ice cream is, you know, grew, I think, last year by 50 percent. And this, there's a lot of a non-dairy uh, vegan um, vegetable protein products that are that are booming right now. So the markets are there, but there's certain barriers. For example, the, most of the products that I've mentioned are not on the list of products that are allowed to be exported into the United States. There's a whole series of testing and um, exams and consultancy work that needs to be done in order to have these products be approved uh, for export. And until that happens, you're unlikely to get the levels of investment that you would need for this to happen. So there are some structural issues that need to be addressed. It's, you know, one is conceptual. Yes, it sounds great, but on a practical basis, you need to follow protocols. You need to assure that these foods are safe. You need to assure that the forms in which they're being sold are in a form that is that is that is safe even though there's a history of consumption there are protocols in place that need to be um, considered and paid for someone has to pay for that i'm the first one to criticize the uh, sclerotic bureaucratic practices but the types of foods you're mentioning are i mean are natural uh, it shouldn't take long for them to be approved by the FDA or whatever government body in the United States approves them uh, for sale. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully that will be the case. And but the, but it's an expensive process. It's an expensive process, and because there are protocols that apply for any product that you want to introduce, first you have to make you have to do, for example, the botanical identification of the plants to make sure that what you're proposing is what is. In fact, that plant, there's a lot of things that need to be done because when you're introducing new foods to a market, that's a big responsibility. Quinoa has become one of the most uh, popular foods in the United States. 
did they go through the same process? I mean, maybe some exporters from Peru or, or I don't know where from. I worked with, 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 with Nestle actually in the early mid eighties, we're doing experimentation with quinoa. And we, we were looking at the markets. They were looking at using it for animal feed. Um, I don't know if it was the certification process itself that took a long time, but, to, but the, the efforts and the time and money that goes into introducing a new product took forever. This was going on in the 80s, and it took about 20 years, 20 years or more for it to become significant. It, it, it's not instant. First off, it, it, there's, a, there's, there's market acceptance of new products. There are, uh, there are a lot of costs involved, and who's going to bear those costs? Well, the market acceptance, is that's just obvious. I mean, people either want it or they don't. No, so, it's not that obvious. It's not they want it. They don't know about it. They, things are marketed. A lot of money goes into it. Acai didn't just become big in the United States because it's such a great product that was being consumed in Brazil. Millions and millions of dollar, marketing dollars went into it. It has to be picked up by the media, and the media doesn't just pick up on it because it's a good idea. You have to understand how the media works. It's a very very competitive and very expensive process. No doubt. But that's separate. I mean, that's just part of business. That's separate from getting government regulators to approve the sale of any product. Yes, right? that's true. Yeah. It, this, this just reminds me of uh, after prohibition, uh, Ecuadorians tried to export the Guardiente to the U.S. And they spent a lot of time and money trying to do that. But no, I mean, very few people in the U.S. wanted to drink aguardiente as opposed to whiskey or or beer. So it just didn't You're, work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's two issues. There's regulatory pathway and there's market demand. You have the two issues. But I think that first is, is I mean, we did a number of trials with the products. The products are fantastic. I mean, that we worked with a number of chefs here. Um, who made amazing foods out of, you know, out of these very, very traditional foods. Um, I think we've seen a lot more uh, development of chicha, for example, in, in more, you know, exotic forms and, in, you know, in packaged beautifully. So I think that there's a huge potential for Ecuador, which has its incredible biodiversity of delicious and relatively unknown foods to be entering the superfood space and to be introducing new flavors, new foods that are, that are highly nutritious. But again, we, all of the studies that have to be done to, to, to test their nutri- nutrition, nutritional levels has to be done. Um, these are, you know, it's, it's not good the, enough just to know. I, I agree with you completely. Huge, huge potential. The regulatory uh, hurdles that you have to go through that you're mentioning, it's just, it's just very frustrating. And, and from a personal point of view, I think they're unnecessary. I mean, why would you have to go to a, through a 10-year or 5-year or 20-year, however long it takes, one-year process to approve the sale of an of Amazonian plant in any market? It's, it's just absurd to me. I, I spoke with uh, Colombian growers of Poroton, and they were looking to export to Europe. And they went on it. They were all excited to join the delegation of Colombia to go on the, the, I think it was to Anuva, one of the largest food affairs in, in Europe. And they got there and they go, well, 
you're going to need to get the approval process between the approval process and market introduction. You you need about half a million dollars. So they just gave up and focusing now on other products where that are authorized. They, I mean, it just it, it, it was just too big of a hurdle for them to address. And you have to remember that that countries like Colombia or Peru or Ecuador have to target you know which are the products that they're going to put their you know their efforts behind. You know, and, and already many of the products that are already getting out are already considered somewhat exotic. Even quinoa, Ecuador has to fight for its space with quinoa. It may be big, but Ecuador doesn't have that big of a, a you know a quinoa market. It's still relatively small. It's still relatively niche, even though it's it's wider known. And and Ecuador then competes with Bolivia, competes with with Peru. Uh, I, have, I have a question that. You may or, or not know about the regulatory process for introducing a new food. Is it because of safety concerns or is it more with regards to do with so it doesn't compete with nationally produced foods? Because both in the U.S. and Europe, farmers are heavily subsidized in several ways. So they just want to make sure that people don't introduce a substitute product. Um. Or what's behind? Yeah, what's behind it? I don't know. What I do know is that there is, in the case of of Europe, there's the Novel Foods Act, and you have to assure that any new foods that are being introduced to the market meet a number of safety standards, and there are procedures to prove that, which are costly. And in the United States, there's a process called GRASS, generally regarded as safe. And in order to be to receive that recognition, there are a number of steps that need to be taken, which which are expensive. Um, but again, if you're looking at large volumes of things, it's relatively small cost in comparison to, um, you know, to what the market could become. But if you're the pioneer of new products and you want to, and you also need certification for each formulation of that product, it's not like, oh, wow, we got approval for Poroton, we're good. Every form of that product needs to be certified. As you're exporting it, your alternative is to is to export it into that market and then process it there. But then you lose all the value added potential in your host country, which would be unfortunate. But that but that would certainly make it more economically viable. So so the main motivation is uh, safety concerns. Well, it's structured as that. Well, you have the, the famous issue with, with regards to American chickens entering the European market. It's one of the main reasons why a free trade agreement between Europe and the States has been a problem. So I guess it has to do with appeasing, well, yeah, I mean, like we mentioned, appeasing local local ways of producing food. But, I think that every market has its own standards and And I would understand that each market has the right to choose which products they feel are safe for their population. That's their choice. They're not obligated to receive things that are not that don't meet their 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 standards as they define them. For whatever their motivation is, it does seem like um, it does seem like a right that a that a country would have. And if 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 I'm interested in introducing a product, I have to conform with 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 their rules the alternative is to which is a very interesting one 
and I think is extremely interesting is the whole local market. For example, I would love to see more of these products included in the local diet, in the local, in the school lunch programs. I would like, you know, a, there to be more people growing these things and consuming them at home as an alternative to expensive uh, or less nutritious imports. So, so there is that as well. Yeah. What you're getting at now is locally produced food, which is recommended by all environmentalists as something that would be beneficial, right? Locally produced foods. I think that, I think that you have to try to strike the balance because you also need to recognize that, for example, if you know, Ecuador's banana exports you know, are extremely important for, for the economic um, survival of the country, that and many other products, Ecuador is an export-based country. So I don't think that it would be reasonable for Ecuador to, you know, as, as I think there's, you have to strike the balance. You know, also, Ecuador happens to be a very rich country agri agriculturally, but not all countries are. It's not reasonable for, you know, I don't know, a, a, a Japan is, 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 going, is not necessarily going to be able to produce the things that Ecuador has, and yet there's a demand for them. So I think that on the one hand, yes, it makes sense to try to consume as much locally as possible, including for, for limiting the amount of, of, of carbon that's wasted in transporting food. But there's also, um, you know, we do have an economic system that depends on trade. Of course. And, and with regards to banana, that's such a uh, common food in practically all the West and many parts of the world that I mean, you have to. Ecuador, Ecuador must, not just for its own survival, but for the appetites of everyone, everyone everywhere, continue to export their bananas. I mean, the few countries where you, it's hard, harder to find Ecuadorian uh, bananas or Colombian bananas is uh, Spain, because they eat a lot of the bananas from the Canary Islands, right? And they're horrible. They're as big <laughs> as my thumb. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that if, if what I would like to see happen is that Ecuador specializes in the high in high end natural foods that have great ecological value, that have great you know you know climate crisis control value, that have zoonotic pandemic control value. And that becomes part of the export is not just the product, but it's the story behind the products. And it's the value that the consumers can provide by consuming these products and by learning about the importance of consuming them to be able to bring back a forest by choosing poroton as a vegetable protein, as opposed to um, something that would be you know, more destructive for the environment. It could be also part of Ecuador's sale as a country, a, a way it can position itself as, as a green country. That it's, that's that, a, no doubt a beautiful uh, way of looking at it, but it seems to be, uh, it, it would be definitely a niche market, a niche market for people. Ecuador is a country of niches in, in most cases. Look at the, look at the topography of this country. You don't have land, you know, you know, 50,000 hectares of flat pieces of land. You have so many microclimates in this country and you have such a crazy wide diversity of foods. 
that is Ecuador's competitive advantage. A lot of niche products. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. So, so why do you choose? You chose Poroton just because it's it was an, an ideal crop for your for your land, right? For your property. Poroton is critical for reforestation, even if it had no nutritional value whatsoever. If it had no value whatsoever, it was already Iniap was already working with with Poroton trees, just as a, as because it's it's it, it fixes nitrogen. It's uh, It's uh, it's melliferous, which means it attracts bees. It helps other plants in the environment to grow. So as a plant in and of itself for reforestation, it's critical. In the Cosmovision, I understand that it, when it's planted near uh, water holes, it helps to keep the water flowing. I think most trees do that anyway, but it's believed to have, you know, to be a particularly beneficial in that case. But on top of that, It's a, it became interesting because of the diversity, the versatility of, the, of it as, as a food. It can be made into ice cream. It can be made into a whole wide range of products. And nutritionally, it's, it's, it's high in, it, in vitamins. It's high in zinc. It's high in, and it, it's high in protein. It's low in fat. So it becomes quite interesting. But so more has to be learned. But excellent product, as you just said. I mean, it's quite versatile. But how easy, how delicate is it? Or, 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 in, or at least in Ecuador? Or is it just, in, in other words, is it uh, a, um, a food that just mainly grows on the Amazon? Uh, on the Amazon or on the it, jungle? It, it grows in us. There's different varieties of poroton. There's even a variety in Tumbaco that's a smaller bean. But the one that grows in the high Amazon and of a, in the cloud forest, cloud forest is of a certain altitude. I think the range is like 1,800 meters to as high as maybe 2,500 meters. So it does grow naturally in, in, those, in those altitudes, just like quinoa, as you know, grows in, in a higher altitude. And what's nice about that is these are the areas you know, where the forests have been degraded, and it could be part of an essential part of a reforestation plan that addresses climate crisis, addresses zoonotic pandemics, and addresses food security, and also addresses income. Yeah. You mentioned I, it has a lot of protein. I mean, how much protein are we talking about? It's similar to, let me look at the chart. I mean, it, it's, it's similar to, to other beans, uh, similar to garbanzo. Um, I think the rate is around 24% protein. So it's a very, it's a nice, but you also have to consider the amino acid balance of the protein. And what we found is that it, it has a, it has a certain, uh, you know, as the scientists could, would better explain that. I think more research needs to be done, but it, but it has a very, very, very favorable amino acid balance. Uh, it compares to egg in certain respects, and I'm looking at it now, for example, in terms of lysine, it's, it's, similar, it's similar to an egg. Uh, I guess it's similar to the soybean, but you have to, but when you think about soy, I think it's similar to soy in many respects, but soy is, 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 has proven to be very destructive environmentally. Yes, it's one of the most attacked types of crops, environmentally speaking. 
so yeah so i guess it that would be you know I, i'm a big fan of chocho chocho is very an excellent protein uh, I, I i i um the difference between chocho and poroton is that chocho is not a tree crop so it's not it has it's great for human health but for for the environment poroton and other tree crops are things that particularly when they're when they're endemic or native to a forest seem like plants that make sense to consider or to prioritize or certainly to to include as part of a you know uh, an environmental plan for uh you know restructuring the the environment and 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 contributing to a better world for the future is poroton tasty is it delicious do you like it i find it addictive it's crunchy These are chips they're Your crazy they and they're so good i have people over i've sent samples to different people in the, in the united states and they love them but we have to get them approved so ecuador the land of volcanoes condors bananas and poroton right <laughs> that's I'd the idea i'd love to see it the whole i'd love to see I, i'm a big believer in biodiversity in many ways and ecuador is be a perfect model of that well i don't i don't i'm not i wouldn't want to i'd be sad if we saw just poroton growing as a monocrop someplace i don't even know if it would and there's so much that needs to be learned about it but certainly it could be part of a of an eco you know forest you know agroforestry system and it's something that we want to explore and experiment with and and develop but it's going to take time because the other problem or the challenge with tree crops is they take a while before they you know in the past i i was the founder of andean organics back you know with with colleagues back in the early 90s and you know there we were we were growing lettuce the lettuce is a short cycle there was it much easier to introduce the introduce loose leaf lettuce into the into the market um actually the gangotenas family was very active with with vegetables and and lettuce back then but it wasn't that widely consumed even here in Ecuador but it was again it was a short term crop now we're talking about you know tree crops it takes longer it takes more patience but has a bigger impact so so you just you just said lettuce wasn't widely consumed it was only the iceberg lettuce when i came to ecuador in the mid 80s it was iceberg lettuce they weren't consuming the loose leaf lettuce and the concern was also because it was considered to be unsafe because of the the irrigation water that was being used no it wasn't widely consumed in ecuador hmm. i wouldn't have never thought of it everybody eats that lettuce now right yeah we were the andean organics was the brand at the time we were the first to have branded barcoded lettuce in plastic bags now i kind of cringe at the idea of selling things in plastic but that's how it was done at the time we were you know introducing clean produce to supermaxi everything was you know in and we we were looking back at our pictures from the, from the 90s and everyone we used masks and gloves everything was sanitized uh because at the time the produce that was being delivered was you know was very you know it was just agranel it was just in bulk 
And the idea was to, to show that you could have an organic product because we were the first certified organic farm in, 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 in first certified organic vegetable farm must've been around 1992. And well, who, who certified you? OCIA, Organic OCIA. Crop Improvement Association. At the time, USDA was not certifying organic. In fact, organic wasn't even encouraged by many of the companies. I remember they, they felt that it would, it, would, it would cannibalize the sale of the other products. If, you, if, if companies you know, were selling organic like Dole, they said, well, then we'll, you know, what, what people think there's something wrong with the other product. But it was only once the demand was built that they realized they had to provide an alternative product to their clientele. You mentioned packaging. I mean, it would be a boon if someone could invent a way to replace pl plastic packaging, especially on water bottles. Uh, there already is. There already, that, that technology exists. The technology exists. It's being used in some places. Uh, it's more expensive so far. And the other issue is, that, is the shelf life. For example, there's some packaging that can be used for export But the problem is that generally, if you're, for example, you have a product, packaged product, because of the distribution systems, it has to last a long time. And a lot of the biodegradable materials don't, to date, are not advanced enough to have the same shelf life as plastic. So until we get there, um, you know, we're, you know we're, it's kind of ironic to have organic products in plastic packaging because of the idea is, is to help the environment you have to consider the packaging as well. That's a very big area. And I would love to see more innovation happen right here in Ecuador in terms of developing packaging materials, extremely important. It seems to me like it's a very difficult endeavor to develop non-plastic packaging. I mean, I have no idea what the, the packaging you just mentioned consists of. I mean, what do they use? How does it, how does it work? I know that there's material made with vegetable fiber. I've seen, I went to, a, to the Expo West last March, a natural food, I think one of the largest natural food expos in the world. And it was so impressive to see materials that looked like plastic that isn't, or that's compostable. But even Pakari chocolate, if you open their package and it looks like it's wrapped in some kind of foil, it says it's compostable. compostable. So I think we're getting there. I think the material the, the materials industry is developing, but I think that that is a critical area and there's a lot of potential. And I would love to see you know, more Ecuadorian companies, entrepreneurs explore and develop and lead that space. I mean, naturally, undoubtedly, but again, it seems, it seems, it seems difficult. Um, well, a lot of things are difficult, but if we don't address the environmental challenges and we're talking about, you know, potentially populating Mars, that sounds difficult to me. It sounds <laughs> like it seems like the, the alternatives are more difficult than grappling with fixing what we messed up with. And when I use the word fix, I'm going to, um, you know, I've been thinking about the, the terminology fix. And I was thinking, what if we thought about fix not as F-I-X, but as F-I-C-Z, F being food security, I being income, C being climate, um, climate damage control, and uh, Z being zoonotic pandemia alleviation. What if we thought about addressing the problems with those parameters?
And we might, if we, if we set these types of parameters for ourselves and try to work within them, all of the brilliance and genius and, and technological advancement and human creativity, if it were channeled towards our existence, our future existence, I think we can do it. I would completely agree with that. But again, it's something we mentioned a few minutes ago is it's government's job to give uh, incentives to nudge, right? I mean, you, you, you can't expect to have clean energy if you subsidize fuel industry. You can't expect to have uh, more efficient ways of producing food if you continue to subsidize traditional and farming methods and so on. Well, that has to where that has to come from the voters. It has to come from the population. Those have to become for that to happen. The 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 that has to be you know that has to be a demanded or you know yeah. It would. I don't. I don't know. So so that's it's what then it's when it becomes difficult if you have to convince a, a whole population of voters to vote for certain things. I mean, I, I, I always like to give this example. Uh, Nixon outlawed marijuana uh, in the 70s or, or whenever it was. Um, and it has taken 50 years for people to say, hey, maybe it shouldn't be illegal. And that's just with one single, and in my opinion, not that controversial issue. So getting uh, voters to galvanize around anything is an extremely difficult thing to do. Well, we're also all consumers and we can, we can make decisions with how we spend our money. So I think that the individual has more power than we sometimes recognize and maybe our impact will be small but if it's in the right direction, then you, we go back to the first question you asked me about, you know, growing my own food. Yeah, it's a lot more work. It's a heck of a lot more work. But I don't, uh, my goal is to try to have a, make a, have a, have a positive impact and, or have a less of a negative impact. And yes, it's more work, but if we all make a bit of an effort, and we and we make choices in how we what things we buy from. Like I try to buy for when I when I do buy things, I try to buy, you know, from local small growers who who might lose their margin when they go through too many too many uh, middlemen. That's my choice. Is it more effort to go do that? Versus, yeah, it is. But uh, but that's my that's my choice. Um, is it not everyone can ha has that choice, but those who do could I, I was impressed that in Brazil, for example, the schools are required by law to buy a certain percentage of food from local growers to support the local grower industry. You know, I, I think that that's that's interesting, something that to be considered here as well. And, I, and it probably would make the food more nutritious and fresher you know, for for the children. Now, I, I do worry about about the public health system here and, and how, if it can really afford to handle many sick people. So if we can have systems in place that, that are more preventative in nature, starting with food. I mean, many people say, you know, food is our medicine. If we, if we eat health, more healthy, natural food, and we support 
those who grow it through our own individual choices where we can. That's something. I don't know. I mean, you ask very tough questions about, you know, changing the system from the top down. I don't disagree. But in the meantime, yeah. I'm doing what I can in my small area. Everyone should do what they can. And there's a lot of uh, products that cater to people who are interested in doing what they can, from food producers uh, to cloth manufacturers. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I find it hard to see a, a, a world where it makes enough of a difference by people, uh, unless it comes from the top down. I mean, most people would just look at the difference in price and they would choose that because they're just looking out for their day-to-day. So that's your, then you're talking about education. That's an educational issue. I think that you, we, let's go back to the, look what we're experiencing now with this pandemic. I mean, if, if this isn't enough of a wake up call that we need to change certain behavior, I don't know what is. The United Nations shows that, that, you know, that, that, you know, large scale monocropping agriculture is extremely, it, it leads to, according to the United Nations, that leads to zoonotic diseases because you have, you know, when you have mass produced animals all in a single place or when you're, when, when animals are losing their habitats, I mean, those are, those are big issues. There are a lot of big issues. I mean, and I think that climate, the climate issues are becoming more widely accepted as, as, a, as, a, as a true existential threat. Picture a world where a hypothetical, however absurd this example is, where you, it, it, it's discovered that if 70% of people uh, get their food from the local store instead of the supermarket, then all future pandemics would cease to exist. People wouldn't do it because everyone would be expecting their neighbor to do it. And number two, the pandemic is, is as we have seen, always far into the future. So, so no, one's, no one's going to work for something that is so far along in the future. But supermarkets are also adapting. If you look at the products that are being offered, you'll see more natural products. You'll see a, a greater diversity because if it's driven by consumers who look for those things, they'll offer it. Or, or if, if, the, if it was discovered that if people just stop using cell phones, Uh, the future pandemic could be avoided. I mean, I mean, would you? I mean, would you stop? I, mean, I know you would, but would the majority of the people, would, would they stop using cell phones? It's my, my point being that if it, if it requires everyone to do their part, it's just not going to work unless proper incentives are in place. Well, um But we should try, definitely. I mean, I think different people have different abilities and have different abilities to change different things. There, there are people who can change the policies and there are other people who can change their choices. But we can, I, I guess the question is, is an, as an individual, you know, too small to make a difference? That, that's, that's, a, that's a philosophical question. My answer is no. I think that every small baby step taken by anybody 
in this direction is a step in the right direction. Whether, yeah, I think it's still good. Yes, I would also agree with that, most definitely. I mean, if, if you can do it, why not? I mean, if you can buy recy a recycled sweats sweatshirt, why not? Even if it's twice or three times as expensive. But then you have the question of, yeah, is it really worth three to it? Or is there an alternative that's not so expensive? You know, and, and that's the other question is, is it, is it truly, I think people then start questioning, is it, is it a price point game? Who owns the company that's selling the two options? Is it a company that owns, you know, both options say, oh, well, if you want to eat something organic or you want the shirt that's made of organic cotton, you know, you can pay three times the price. So it just becomes a price point and a game. So, so it, it, it is a tricky, it's tricky. Yeah, that we agree a hundred percent. It is tricky. But anyway, I think um, uh, people should definitely listen to these ideas you talk about, Craig, because they're interesting. They are not commonly talked about. And um, having said that, uh, I will also recommend your documentary, which is Thank you. For the listeners, fun. please check out Sprayed. It's S-P-R-A-Y-E-D. You can find it on Gaia TV, which is G-A-I-A dot com, or on um, Prime, Amazon Prime. It's, it's not available in Latin America on Amazon, but it is available on Gaia TV um, in Latin America. But yeah, check it out. Write in comments if you have any. And uh, yeah, just thanks. Thank you, Pablo, for inviting me. And um, I do believe that we as individuals can can make a difference even if it's a small difference right why not try agreed thank you thank you very much craig for for joining you, me Pablo. and all right